0: And then, here and there, and always at SexpotComedy.com.
1: Welcome to the Narrators Podcast. I'm Robert Rutherford. And I'm Andrew Orvidal. This podcast collects stories that were told at The Narrators,
2: a monthly storytelling event that features people telling true stories based on a theme.
1: The show takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at the Buntport Theater in Denver, Colorado. These stories were recorded live on February 18th, 2015. The theme of the evening was a grand gesture. Your next storyteller, uh, she is a kundalini yoga instructor, a writer, an activist, and God, I love this. She's an apocaloptimist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Please welcome
2: Ranjit. Hey everybody, Uh, this is my first time on stage telling stories. I I tell them all the time, but usually not on stage. So um, I mentioned in a staff meeting this morning that I was uh, worried no one would get my reference to say anything, to which I was met with fierce opposition from my young coworkers. It's nice to know movies from the 80s, John Cusack movies from the 80s, have a timeless quality to them. Despite the utterly creepy stalker quality to many of his love antics, which in a way informed my own fumbling pursuits, I remain utterly charmed by these not just grand, but grandiose gestures of love. Excuse me, I'm totally nervous. (laughs) As a young latchkey kid who had summer run of a 10-block radius on South Hooker Street in the working-class part of Inglewood, I didn't have much supervision. Aside from my mother's whistle that could incite the fear of God in small children, I didn't have much of a curfew either. And in the summer of 1986, I owned my neighborhood. I was a classic tomboy. And although my gender performance carried with it normalcy in the form of, it's a stage, the underlying feelings behind this expression were far more murky. Well, I fell in love. I don't even remember her name, but she was perfect. And she was visiting grandma only for a short time that summer. Her temporary stay laid the foundation for what would become an epic courtship, or lie. At the time, I had no framework or understanding or even words for what I was feeling, but I know and I can viscerally remember feeling shame knowing that somehow what I was feeling was not only not normal, but was also wrong. There was only one solution as I could see it. I had to be a boy. I enlisted my best friend, Becca, in the scheme, assuring her that it was just for fun. We successfully convinced this young girl that I was a boy. I had the whole neighborhood in on it. She and I became boyfriend and girlfriend. Now, at the age of eight, boyfriend and girlfriend consisted of holding hands, giggling, and acting utterly ridiculous around each other. Which is pretty much exactly the way I behaved in all my friendships at the time. It was innocent and sweet, but for me, it was a secret, and it was wrong. It wasn't long before she left for home, and I never saw her again. What remained was this nagging sense that my desires and wants did not match those of my friends. I quickly learned access to social gain would be through boyfriends, not girlfriends. And this outward expression of normalcy would hide every future crush on a friend that I would develop over the next 10 years. Fast forward seven years and Alicia Edwards happens. My best friend. My crush for Alicia was so severe that I actually signed up to manage the basketball team so I could be near her. I wasn't good enough to make the team. Chasing after basketballs and filling water bottles seemed my best bet to be near her. We spent a lot of time together. But these feelings I had demanded expression. So I wrote her love letters, anonymous love letters. I would sneak out of my house at night. This becomes a theme. Ride my bike to her house and put the letters in her mailbox. Of course, who's the first person she tells about these letters? Me, her best friend. I secretly love that, yet I immediately panicked. Shit, what now? I told her my best guy friend, Tony, must have sent them, and that he had a massive crush on her. Now I'm really in trouble. I convince her not to talk to Tony about the letters. Tony's way too shy, I say. Surely you will scare him off. She bought it. It wasn't long before Tony and Alicia were happily dating, and I was festering in my self-created pool of unrequited love. I know, it's tragic. In my sophomore year of high school, I met Desi Anderson, the kink in my armor. After years of denying my feelings for my friends, I found them reflected back to me for the first time. Desi experienced the same feelings of doubt and shame, and this left our sacred connection in the shadows. It was very Melissa Etheridge come to my window. <clears throat> no, really, I mean it. I literally snuck out of my house and knocked on her window at night. Every night. And while my hopelessly romantic side relished in the secrecy of our nighttime affair, I was deeply pained about its lack of public or daytime expression. Our fear made us vampires. I chain-smoked cigarettes and crooned to Mazzy Star. I made Desi mix tapes with the same song repeated over and over. Songs like Madonna's Utterly Cheesy Crazy For You. Yeah. Do you have any idea how time-consuming a mixtape like this is? Play, record, rewind. Play, record, rewind. Play, record, rewind. Lucky for both of us, as there was no way I could sustain the pain of this teenage dream, Desi graduated. She went off to the military, married a man, and broke my little heart. Years later, she would divorce, move to Portland, and surpass even me and dyke them. But back to that kink. It let just enough light in, and over the next two years, the kink became a crack, and the crack became a crevice that would ultimately split me wide open. I met my first out lesbian my senior year of high school. She was my boss at the dry cleaners, where I spent my afternoons her girlfriend would bring her chinese food and they would embrace and sometimes kiss it was exhilarating not because i was attracted not because of any other reason than here it was right before me an expression of my inner feelings for women personified in their relationship and it wasn't wrong it wasn't shameful it was perfect it was beautiful i could breathe It wasn't long before I came out to Heather, my boss, and then my best friend, Michael, and then another good friend, Ben. Not surprising, my two high school friends I came out to would later come out themselves. There is radar, it's a real thing. A lot happened that year. I was editor-in-chief of my high school newspaper, and it was in this role that I conceived my ultimate grand gesture. I would come out in the senior edition of my high school newspaper. Ben helped me craft the plan where we staged a CK1 ad. Every senior but myself and one other woman were in the ad but once. Carrie and I were in it twice. Once facing each other seductively, and once facing men distractedly gazing back at one another. (coughs) It was subtle and powerful. Less subtle was my final column in the paper where I referenced Ellen DeGeneres' coming out story and how it inspired me to also come out. I wasn't yet brave enough to fully come out, so I made some jokes about copying to things like the sophomore blackout. I ended the column open-ended, but with no more question in my heart about who I was and who I could love. Turns out, not the countless crushes of the past or the many heartbreaks of the future, this moment was the ultimate grand gesture. Thank you.
1: Your next storyteller, he he uh, he claims that this is one of his. He loves coming to this show more than almost anything else. And the truth is, we love when he comes even more than that. He is a member of the Fine Gentlemen's Club, and he is uh, he's one of the which is a group that hosts the the best weekly comedy showcase in town. Too much fun. Uh, so, without further ado, please welcome Chris Sharpentier.
0: You took my intro saying how much I like doing this show. That's what I was going to say. God damn it. Thank you guys for having me. This is truly one of my favorite things to do. Uh, so I'm honored every time I get asked. So when I, was, uh, when I was 16 years old, my parents put me into a drug rehab. And uh, a lot of people assume when you hear that when you're 16 years old, you get put into a drug rehab. You had a, you had a tough life, a tough home life. You know, parents aren't there Whatever. And uh, that was not the situation with me. Not at all. That's, in fact, why I got put in rehab. My parents loved me very much, uh, and they were always there for me. I probably didn't even necessarily need to go into a rehab, but they didn't know what else to do. I was doing a lot of drugs, and I was—I dropped out of school. I was kind of a shithead. So they panicked. They had never been in this situation before, and they put me into a drug rehab. Um... And so then the question becomes like, well, why were you doing so many drugs? Because I really have no, I mean, if you look at it, I have no reason. I came from a great home. We had plenty of money. I lived in a good neighborhood. There was nothing wrong. Um, And when I try to boil it down, the only thing I can think, two reasons. One, it was really fun, or at least it started really fun. And then two, I never really felt like I fit in anywhere uh, with my family or with my friends. I was always just kind of the... The black sheep, I mean, really the only thing that I had that separated me from any of my friends were all very talented people. One was in a band, and one was a very talented soccer player and very good writers, and they were all very talented, and I was just kind of funny, uh, which later turned into be a cool thing for me. But at the time, it really wasn't that, uh, wasn't that special. I was just kind of funny. And, and I never really fit in anywhere. And, and I got put into this drug rehab, and my mom tricked me. She picked me up. Uh, she told me I was going to go to lunch. She was going to take me to lunch. Uh, and then she dropped me off at this drug rehab and she said, you have, a, you have an appointment with a drug counselor. I'll be back in an hour. That's the situation. So I was like, What the fuck? <laughs> All right. Got out of the car and I went inside. And uh, it was at this church in Broomfield at the time. And, and I walked inside and there's this kid. It's like, I don't know, couldn't have been much older than me. Super long hair. He's sitting at this table, eating like a microwave dinner. And he looked up, and he was like, oh, shit. I forgot I had an appointment, dude. What's up? And I was like, who the fuck? What's up? And he's, little, he's like, you want to go and smoke? And I was like, sure. And in my lexicon at the time, you want to go and smoke meant you want to go smoke some weed. So I was like, this is the coolest drug have ever. <laughs> this is going to be great. But of course, he ended up meaning smoking cigarettes, which hey, that was pretty cool, especially at 16, you know. He bummed me a cigarette, and I was like, that's pretty cool. And he started talking to me, and he was like, you know, you, your parents think you have a real problem, and, and they want you to, they're scared, you know, and they want you to stay, and they want you to to do this drug rehab, and they want you to get better. And I was like, Bill, well, I don't, you know, fuck this place. I don't want to do drug rehab. I'm doing fine. I'm having a blast. I'm selling drugs and doing drugs, and I got lots of money. Fuck you guys. I don't need any of this, you know. I'm having a great time. And he was like, well, why don't you just come back tonight? It'll help your parents get off your back, uh, which was a... D- I mean, my parents were great. Again, they were very great. They loved me. They were overbearing. Uh, and pretty much all of my 15th and 16th year was just fighting with my parents. Um, so, the, I mean, you're going to bum me cigarettes, and you're going to tell me that my parents will get off my back? I'll come. I'll come back tonight, you know, see what the hell, what's going on. And... Uh, So they sent a couple people from the group to actually come and pick me up for the first meeting, and it was three very attractive young ladies, Uh, and they all gave me hugs right away, just right immediately. They were like, oh, and they said, we love you. Oh, we love you. You know, come on, let's go have some fun. And I was like, what the hell is going on? This is so weird. This is so weird. And I went to the first meeting that night, and there was like 30 kids, and they were cool. They were all cool. There was a like, guy with a huge mohawk. There was a bunch of kids, like raver dudes, which was definitely not my scene. I was more of the punk rock guy, and I was like, oh, he's cool. And the other guys, they seemed cool, though, and they all had serious war stories, like bigger than mine. I, was, I thought I was like king shit with my drug use. These guys were fucked up. Like some of them were really, really bad, so I was like, you know, attracted to that. They were cool, and I was like, man, these guys are cool, and they're in this rehab. Maybe this is cool. I'll come back tomorrow. And I kept coming back, but I didn't stop getting high. I found the ultimate loophole. I was like, this is the best. I can just keep getting high and keep going to this rehab. My parents are off my back. These guys are all cool. And I did that for a couple of weeks. And eventually, one of the counselors, uh, who was my favorite counselor, his name was Phil. All of the counselors, by the way, were like 19 years old. They had all been in the program themselves. And they were all sober through this program. And now they were helping counsel other kids. And so all these counselors were like 19, 20, maybe 25 was like the oldest. They all had really long hair. They were real cool. They were like one of the guys, my favorite guy, Phil, who eventually sat me down and was like, dude, you got to make a decision. You can't just keep coming back here and getting high. That doesn't work. You You have to really do it. You have to commit. And I was, I mean, this guy was so cool. I can't tell you. Like this guy would give me a ride home every night. And I found out later that counselors weren't supposed to do that. You weren't supposed to ride in their cars. That was against the law of or whatever weird thing that they had, maybe against their rules. I don't remember. Um, but he would give me a ride home every night and we, we would talk and just sit in front of my house. The church or rehab, whatever, was only maybe five, six minutes away from my house. So I really didn't even need a ride, but he would give me a ride. And then we'd just sit in his car in front of my house and smoke cigarettes and talk for like a half an hour And usually it wasn't about anything important or big, but we would just laugh. And in my life, I mean, that's all I care about, ever. That's all I've ever cared about, is laughing and having fun. And this guy got it. I mean, we would just laugh and laugh. And this guy, everyone called him the Hurricane. He often had his shirt off. He was a fucking animal. I wish, I wish I could have partied with him so bad. He was so much fun sober that I was like, man, imagine if we could get fucked up together. We would have the best time. You really are a hurricane. I mean, he was the best. We loved this guy. And, and eventually, he was like, you got to commit to doing it. And I was like, all right, I will commit. I will do this. It seems worth it, you know? Like, my life really was going nowhere. And what the hell? What do I have to lose, you know? I'll do it. And that meant going into an outpatient program where I had to go every day and do this whole meetings and then meetings a couple nights a week. And then every weekend I was with them. I basically spent all of my time there. And it took me a little while in hanging out with them, but eventually, because I was too cool, eventually I asked what the fuck they were all wearing around their neck. Because they were all wearing these little things that looked like a, a tiny mini volleyball, like a leather volleyball, marble-sized about, that was on a leather strap, and they all wore them around their necks. And I've, in an effort to be cool, I didn't ask for a long time. And eventually I was like, all right, what's up with these things? And they're like, oh, these are what you get one of these when you have 30 days sober. And uh, we give it to you at one of the meetings, you get it, and it was, I mean, that was cool. Everybody had one. When I, started to, I started to look around, all the coolest people in the rehab, they all had one. And I, as an impressionable 16-year-old, I wanted one. I was like, man, I want one of those. I want to be one of the cool people in the rehab who has the, the little volleyball thing, which I found, <laughs> I found out later was called, it was called a monkey fist, uh, it's a type of knot that sailors used to use, that they would tie uh, their ship out, uh, like when they got into dock, they would use a monkey knot to tie their ship, and that was the symbolism that you're getting off the rough waters of drug addiction to the nice solid land of sobriety. Uh, and so that was the symbolism, and and so I decided to do it. And I went to the drug rehab, and I went to the, to the outpatient, and I went every day, and And I met all these incredible people, and I made lifelong friends. I still am friends with these people. Years later, none of us sober. Anyway, um, none of us. Not one. Anyway, um, I don't know. We're all doing good. We're thriving. Anyway, well, except for one. But that's He was helpless anyway. So, sorry. So it was a big deal. uh, and, And I started going, and I started... I started feeling better, I started living my life, I, I made friends, I, I started to get this inward perspective on my life, and, and what I was doing, and why I was doing it, and, and everything. And then, the day came where I got to get my fist, my 30-day fist, and, and uh, my, that's what they called it, they didn't call it a monkey fist anymore, they just call it your fist. And, it was, uh, and I was so excited, I couldn't believe it. I, and we, we had a meeting, and then after the meeting, uh, there's like 30 kids, and they're all arm in arm, you know, shoulder shoulder to shoulder, hands over each other's shoulders, and uh, we do a, we do a little prayer thing, and we pass around a hat for donations, and then Phil, the hurricane, gets in the middle of the of the circle, and he's holding a fist, he's holding one of the monkey fists, and he's spinning around his finger, and he's going around the circle, and he's telling everybody how awesome I am. And how amazing I am. And how of an important person I am. And what an amazing story I have. And what I've been through. And he started crying. Talking about how I reminded him of him when he was a kid. And before he got help. And that that, that this, this was important. And that I was an important person. And we needed to help me. And the whole group was here for me, and this was the best thing I've ever done. And then he told me to come get my fist, and I stepped forward, and he put it around my neck. And then everybody picked me up. They put me on their shoulders like I had just won the fucking Super Bowl, like I had done something amazing. And they picked me up, and they started chanting my name, Chris, Chris, Chris. And they were lifting me up and doing a whole thing, and they're all passing me around. And the whole time, I just kept thinking, I am never going to tell these guys I only have three days sober. Thank you guys so much.
1: <laughs> Chris Sharpens here. Keep it going. The Narrator's Podcast is recorded and produced by Ron Doyle. The Narrator's Podcast is brought to you by
2: these amazing sponsors. The great guys at Illegal Pete's and Greater Than Records, who in addition to providing rad burritos all over town, provide great local music and comedy. Check out the appropriately
1: named Sexy Pizza at either of their locations in Capitol Hill or Old South Pearl, or on their website sexypizzaonline.com. And finally, by Breckenridge Brewery, making balanced, approachable, and interesting handcrafted beers in Colorado for over 25 years. Check them out at breckbrew.com. For more information about the narrators and to listen to past episodes, go to the narratorspodcast.com. Thanks for listening.